Welcome, everyone, to The F Word, Conversations on Faith. I'm your host, Matt Miofsky, and this week we are going to talk to John Carney again. We're going to talk about what we can learn from faith and failure, what failure has to do with faith. I'm going to do an interview with Tom Herr about grit and the idea of teaching people and kids how to fail. Uh, But first, I'm glad to have back my friend and radio icon, John Carney. How are you, John? Fine. I rarely get asked back. This is exciting. Well, I think, you know, we talked about this last week, but uh, you and I are friends. We're not just sort of radio, you know, people who hang out on radio. And I like having you on here because, you know, you always ask, I don't know if they're good questions or just interesting ones, but we've got a fun way of playing off of each other. And so, you know, people can expect you and I to be doing this at the beginning of these shows quite often, if and that's I, okay with and, you. And I think I could also stand as the before shot for the deeply spiritual. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I'm going to talk to you more about that at some point. I bet people are interested in your own spiritual journey, but uh, we'll save that for a different day. Uh because I, I do think that people want to know, you know, I mean, people listen to you. They want to know why faith matters to you. You think so? I don't know. After 36 years of just talking, I think there isn't much they don't know about me at this point. <laughs> That's probably true. Well, I- Coming up on the second segment, I'm going to interview someone that you and I both know, actually. His name is Tom Herr. He was the former headmaster of the New City School uh, here in St. Louis, and now I think he has he has a really fancy title, Scholar-in-Residence at University of Missouri-St. Louis. But um, he writes about failure, and I know it's a weird thing for me to, to you know start a new year talking about failure. But it's something that's been on my mind a lot because I've noticed this sort of trend with people that I've been talking with that people are really hard on themselves when they fall short, especially when it comes to like goals, resolutions, commitments. We talked about this a little bit last week. And I wrote an entire book about failure. It's called, aptly called, Fail, What to Do When Things Go Wrong. Because I actually think that how we deal with failure uh, is a big part of our faith and I don't know if that sounds like an odd thing to say, but uh, but that's really what I want to explore today. Uh, people are hard on themselves. You don't strike me as someone who's really hard on yourself, but maybe you are. I think on some level we all are. And to speak to Tom Herr for one second, an excellent choice. We know We know Tom because when my girls were little, they both went through New City School, and I think he's an excellent uh, choice to talk about failure because as the principal there and seeing the kids in school, they were, you know, they were kids that were on the spectrum. They were kids that were gifted to the point where they were just brilliant. You didn't have to teach them anything. And there were other kids that really needed more than a nudge to, to learn and what they implemented there. And I'm sure you guys have talked about that educational program they adopted was identifying someone's strength and then playing to the individual's strength, which I think is a tough thing to do when you've got a school full of kids, but it's been proven successful time and time again with him and others that have implemented it, but it's avoided failure in a lot of cases. Yeah. And, and, you know, here's, let me talk, share a little bit about why I care about this. I mean, I really think that looking back on my own life and I'm wondering if listeners, if this resonates with some of you looking back at my own life, I can see times when I've failed or gone through extraordinary hardship, some of which was because of my own mistakes. And I wouldn't wish those seasons on some of my worst enemies. I don't want to go through them again. And yet I know that I learned something. God taught me something in the midst of those that I probably couldn't learn at any other time. And I look back on my life and I just can can see how that plays out, that it's true for me. And I suspect it's true for a lot of you as well. And it, it got me to thinking about how you know learning how to fail or to come through seasons of failure is so critical really for our long-term success and growth. Uh, But but it's also, you know, it also matters, I think, for our relationship with God. Because if we're scared to fail, 
then we stop trying bold things in our life. If we're scared to, uh, if we're scared to fail, then we oftentimes will will stop living up to kind of our God given potential. And yet, we we have a God that oftentimes works in the midst of our failure to do something in us that is surprising and and unique. And so I'm just curious, I mean, this is getting really personal, John, but I don't know, can you look back over your life and I don't know, are there times when you've experienced the truth of that, when you have failed and or learned something significant through seasons of hardship? Sure. And I think failure is a great topic uh, and a great way to separate people who are easily defeated and people that become, you know, self-starters. And it's like, well, I'm going to dust myself off, put on my big boy pants and get back at it. I think that takes a certain characteristic that some have and some don't. And honestly, I'm afraid to say I'm probably in the latter group and I haven't taken a lot of chances that might have reaped grand rewards because I was afraid of failure. Uh, and then later in life, there there has been regrets that I didn't try to do something. Yeah, and I think, you know, I thought of this because resolutions, you know, we're starting the year off and a lot of us, I think, have just lowered our expectations of what we can accomplish in life or what we ought to try to accomplish because we have we failed in the past. And so we start living smaller. And uh, of course, you know, as a person of faith, you know, we, we read, you know, I read when I think about faith, when I read scripture, we have this God who calls us to live bigger, to sort of trust that we're capable of more maybe than we thought we were capable of, to remember that we don't do things alone. And therefore, uh, God is is moving and motivating us. Uh, but so often what we do is we sort of live small. And, and I see that in, in too many people. And I, and I think it's not because it's not because we don't want to try. It's not because we, we don't have deep down like some big desires for our life. But I think the specter of failure kind of hovers over a lot of us. And, uh, and, and I can't help but thinking it might be at least in part from this idea that a lot of us pick up, uh, maybe it's when we're growing up or along the way, that failure is bad, that failure is to be avoided, that that failure will set you back, and therefore don't fail. And I think it's a bad message because failure, while not something that we seek out, is actually an opportunity for like in- incredible uh, growth. And, um, and so I'm going to, I'll give an example for, for myself. You know, when I started the gathering, I started the gathering now 14 years ago and the very first year, John, I've never really shared this publicly. I almost quit the ministry. It was after my first year, I was 29 years old and the church was beginning to grow, but I was a mess. Like I, I, I was, I felt in over my head, I wasn't really prepared. I had started the church, and I, um, I I didn't really grapple with what that would mean for my life, and for, I was suddenly responsible for sort of shepherding all of these people, and it really freaked me out. And I, I kind of, I, I really was on the the verge of quitting. Uh, I wasn't a particularly attentive husband. I wasn't being a good dad. I didn't feel like a good pastor. I felt like a huge failure. And I called up, you know, in our system, we have like, you know, a bishop. And and I called up my my superior and I said, I, I can't do this anymore. I have to quit. And I remember I had this, <laughs> I had this great mentor and she, and she just said, you're not going to do that. And we're going to stop, just pause a second and we're going to walk through this. And I won't get into all the particulars, but the, the the year that followed was a year where I had to really unpack um, why I was in over my head, what I wasn't doing right, what I needed to do better. I had I had to really kind of do an autopsy, uh, autopsy on what happened to me. But that second year of ministry was really the year where I grew up as a leader, where I established a lot of the disciplines that are still with me today. And I, I, I can't help but think... 15 years later, the gathering would not be what it is, and I would not be where I am if it weren't for having hit that spot 
where I had to learn and I had to grow. And and I share that not not to sort of toot my own horn, but but I share it because um, it is so easy to hit those points in our life that are hard or where we feel like we're failing or and, and to just say, you know what, forget it. Like, I don't think I can do this anymore or to throw in the towel. Um, I feel, you know, I, I feel like we're, we're confronted with those sorts of things daily. And yet when you hit that spot, that's oftentimes the, the very moment when God can begin doing something uh, anew with you. And so... Um, I'm, I'm, but I'm curious, I don't know, have, have there been seasons like that for you? I mean, let me take radio, for example. I'm brand new at this. Were you always just great at radio? Yeah. Oh, of course. I mean, <laughs> your dad did it. So, I mean, and I did it in spite of him, but before I, I want to go back to something quickly, sorry to hijack yeah. your show. No, but do it. When, when you picked up the phone and called your Bishop and said, I'm going to quit. I'm in over my head. The first question that popped into my mind was, how did you know you were over your head? Well, <laughs> I've seen plenty I, of people go through life and I see them and thinking they're not handling this very well. And they're the last ones to know it. Yeah, I think what I felt, I don't know if you've ever heard of that, like imposter syndrome have you ever heard of that where, you know, you're in a position and people are looking up to you to do something and, and you feel like an imposter, like I don't belong here. I, I, I'm not capable of this secretly. I don't know what I'm doing. These people, I mean, all that kind of stuff. That's how I felt. I mean, I was, I was 29 years old and yet people were, you know, asking me for advice on their marriage and, uh, coming to listen to what I had to say about God and life. And, and I, I just, I've, so I've, I think I felt that imposter syndrome. I also will say I didn't feel emotionally. Um, I knew a lot in my head, but I didn't feel like I knew a lot in my heart. Uh, uh, that is, I had like a lot of academic knowledge about the Bible, about God, about, you know, spirituality, but my own a spiritual life wasn't mature. By the way, I, I see this problem a lot with with a lot of new Christians that we confuse knowing a lot in our head with sort of knowing a lot in our heart or the maturity of our head and the maturity of our heart. So I just I felt I felt like I wasn't I wasn't ready for the leadership. And I think all that started getting me in a cycle of just negative self-talk, which I suspect uh, a lot of people can resonate with, but that's that's kind of what happened to me. And so I think all that worked on me to the point where I kind of had this, this mini breakdown of, of confidence where I said, I, I, don't, I don't think I can do this. And looking back on it, it wasn't just subjective. I don't think I was being a good leader because I was just in this, I, 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 hadn't, I hadn't yet done the things I needed to do to, to mature and to lead well. And I don't want, I don't want you or anyone to think that I'm dodging the question because some might be saying, well, he's asked you twice, John, how you failed and you've managed to turn it around to mess. Well, we don't like to talk about this, right? I don't, I don't mind. I don't, I don't mind at all, but I, I but I have one more question and then I'll, yeah. I'll spill my guts. Good. You do take my insurance, right? Um, <laughs> there was a, a, a bit of failure and this, this came to mind a conversation prompted by my 11-year-old a couple of weeks ago. My son and I were driving somewhere, and out of nowhere, out of the bowels of babes, right? Out of nowhere, he says to me, Dad, what, what's your biggest regret? Mm. And I'm tying that to failure because that's kind of what it was. And one of the things that happened was the regret didn't hit me until years later because I don't think I realized it was the failure that it was. I'll explain. In a nutshell, I went to a military academy in Indiana, which was one of the top schools in the country in the 70s. And it cost my dad a ton of money. And I had a really good time. I was 15. I just discovered women and was playing football and having a big old time. And the one thing that I neglected was my education. 
And after a couple of years, they said, John, you know, it's been terrific having you here, but we really want to give this space to somebody that wants to learn. So I went on to another school and another school and probably another school. Fast forward to about 15 years ago, I take my wife back to this beautiful military academy in Indiana for an alumni weekend, although I didn't graduate, but I saw some old friends and things, and we were going to spend the whole weekend there, and I left at the end of the first day because I was so depressed because for the first time, it occurred to me the opportunity that I wasted and the failure that I was when I was there. Yeah, and and I you know, I bring this stuff up not to make you feel bad about that or for me to revisit a hard part of my own life or for people listening to feel bad about themselves, but you know, in a spiritual sense when it comes to like the Christian tradition, we call a lot I mean, we call a lot of this stuff sin. You know, those those times when we've done something that we look back on and say I regret doing that, or I wish I wouldn't have done that, or that was a mistake, or that hurt other people. And our natural tendency is to hide that stuff, to push it down, to not talk about it, to not uh, want to explore it. And and, and yet, um, when we when we're willing to go there, like your eleven year old kind of made you go back to that moment. When when we when we see those instances, not as things we want to repeat, not as things we wish we are glad that we did. But as as growth out as opportunities where God can teach us something that can inform the rest of our journey or the rest of our life, th- that's really I think the value in not being afraid of even those seasons of deep regret like that. And I, and I bet you've learned something in in thinking back on that and what you went through um, as a teenager. Uh, it set you up for for something. I don't know. What? But what was that moment like for you, even the one 15 years ago or when your 11-year-old brought it up to you? Um, It made me sad that I didn't take better advantage of that or other great educational opportunities I had. But, you know, it worked out in the sense that being the class clown led to an okay career. But I've said this before. I'm not sure I would have been a wildly successful car salesman because nobody wants to buy a car from the funniest guy on the lot. (laughs) Well, that's true. And, uh, you know, but people who might be listening, you know, I can imagine them saying, because people in my church say this to me a lot. Yeah, Matt, that might be true. Failure can teach us something or God can um, reveal something to us in those moments you don't understand, you know, what I've done or, um, what I messed up. And I, I hear that a lot. And I I just think it's important for people to know that, um, failure does not have to define you for the rest of your life, whether it's a moral failure, which I, which I know, um, we all have, we don't want to talk about those, whether it's a, you know, a, a failure when it comes to family or parenting or being a spouse or a marriage failure or a failure professionally, which a lot of us have had to struggle with, that um, I, I get concerned because a lot of us, I think, feel indicted by our failures. Like these are things that have to define us for the rest of our lives. And I think what uh, what faith teaches us and desperately in some cases wants us to to understand is that getting real with our failure and seeing what God has to teach us in and through that failure sets us up for a life where that failure doesn't define us, um, where we can indeed have life on the other side of it. And, you know, my example, maybe in the grand scheme of things, wasn't that big of a deal. Maybe, you know, looking back, um, yours isn't a big deal now, but we but both of us have hit those low points and and found that there's life on the other side of them. And I think for a lot of people they, they need to hear that, you know, that truth that uh, failure doesn't have to define us and that uh, God indeed is a God who is big enough to sort of deal with our failure and do something in it uh, that we couldn't learn at any other point. I often say that, you know, our low point is not our last point. 
there are things you are learning in, in the midst of uh, a bad situation. They're going to set you up. That your um, that your failure maybe now uh, can be turned around and become the very thing that you have to offer uh, others when you're on the other side of it. I mean, that's that's a, a another great truth is that maybe what you're struggling with now, what you haven't done well now, is going to become uh, something that you have to offer to other people who are going through the same thing. So in all these ways, uh, I just I want people to know that failure doesn't have to define them, and it's not a reason to give up, but there's life on the other side of it. And of course, that's a foundational part of our faith. And so that's really what, uh, what I want to talk to Tom about in the next segment. He's going to give us some practical uh, advice on how do we do this, specifically what does failure teach us, how do we see the, um, these low points as moments of growth instead of moments of giving up. I know you know Tom. We started out with that. Um, anything you want me to ask him? Um, ask him if I'm all paid up on the tuition, although my girls are in their <laughs> 20s now. I would hope so. I will do that. I'll ask him that. Um, all right, John, are you going to join me next week again? I hope you will. Yes, and you learned the number one rule of radio, and that is to get what you want, always ask the person while you're on the air. I know, perfect. So people can expect you and I to banter a little bit next week. Every uh, opportunity to talk to you, I will jump at. We will get that. Uh, coming up next, I am going to interview Tom Herr. He's the author of a bunch of books, but one of them is called Fostering Grit. And his work is all about how, how, we, how we should be teaching kids and therefore people how to fail instead of seeing failure as something to be avoided. But I, had, I think his work has something to teach all of us. So I'm excited to do that. That'll be right up after the break. Uh, but for now, this is the F Word, Conversations in Faith on the Big 550 KTRS. Do you ever feel like you just don't belong or you don't know where you're going? Have you yet to become the person you aspire to be? Do you want to believe in something bigger than yourself? The gathering started with all of those questions in mind. We exist to create a Christian community that is compelling for new generations of people, where we invite you to belong, become, and believe. Church was intended for everyone, so we want to invite you to visit gatheringnow.org and see how you belong. We know a lot of people in the world feel disconnected. At The Gathering, we want to help you find meaningful relationships, not only with other people, but also with God. At gatheringnow.org, you'll find ways to connect with others, find times for our services, and learn other ways to interact. But the best first step you can take is joining us for worship. Again, you can find all the information on how to connect to our church by visiting gatheringnow.org. We have multiple services on Sunday, and you can also catch us on demand anytime throughout the week. We look forward to meeting you soon. Well, welcome back, everyone, to The F Word. I'm your host, Pastor Matt Miofsky. And I would, by the way, love for you to connect with me. If you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, look up my name on any of those, I'd love to just connect with you. And you can always find out more about me and the church I serve, The Gathering, at gatheringnow.org. Uh, so I'd love for you to check that out. Okay, I want to introduce my next guest. And he is a lot of things. He is currently a scholar-in-residence at University of Missouri-St. Louis, He's a teacher of teachers, an author, five times over, a speaker, the former headmaster of New City School here in St. Louis, Missouri. So I want to welcome to the show uh, Dr. Thomas Herr. Tom, it is great to have you on. Matt, it's, it's a treat to be here, and I, I have to say all those nice things you said about me are good, but I'm not nearly as effective as I sound. <laughs> well, you've done a lot, and I'm impressed by the scholar-in-residence. I one day want to to be something like that. But uh, when we met, you were the the headmaster at New City School, uh, a school here in St. Louis. And I have to, I think back to that, I don't know how long ago it was. It seems like a long time ago. You reached out to me and I remember I was so honored 
when you, because I had heard about you, I had actually interned at New City School when I was in college at Washington University. I'd done like a, a week-long thing there. Um, you reached out to me, and I thought it was interesting. Uh, talk a bit more about that. You had families who went to my church that also were part of your school. What prompted you to first reach out to me? Do you remember? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're right. I had a number of families who were parishioners of yours. And, uh, you know, we would chat about lots of different things in life. And almost always they would bring up uh, going to the gathering and how, how important that was to them and how significant it was to their lives and having a relationship with you. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Who is this guy? And then I would drive occasionally down McCausland on a Sunday. And the parking lot was always packed. And I thought to myself, something's going on there, and I need to know about it. And so I sent you an email and out of the blue, and uh, to your credit, you answered it, and we had coffee. And I remember the first time we met, uh, we wound up talking about community and how you were running a church, I was running a school, and yet what we were both doing was bringing people in the fold, if you will, making it comfortable, making it safe, making it a place where they could really grow and learn together and be part of the community. Yeah, what I love about that, and I, I hope I'm not revealing too much, but you reached out to me, and at the time, I mean, you weren't particularly a person of faith. I think you kind of said that to me, and of course, I wasn't an educator, but you were curious, and I remember us getting together, and it didn't matter in a sense that uh, I was a pastor, you were an educator. It, we found so much common ground in the things that we were working on, and that's always stood as kind of a lesson to me that— it's better to be curious than to assume or to be judgmental even about maybe things that we're not a part of and that we oftentimes have a lot more in common in the kind of work that we're doing than we have differences. Yeah, that's well put. I mean, we can always learn from others and going into any situation wanting to know how and why I think everybody benefits. Yeah, and, and I started, you know, this radio show in part because of, of that, you know, that faith is often sequestered as this other thing, and yet the way that I experience faith, that I've tried to teach people about faith, the way that I experience my own, like, religious life is so interdisciplinary. I mean, it's informed by certainly scriptures and sacred texts of, you know, my tradition, Christianity, but it's been so informed by um, other people, including people like you. And so I just think it's important, especially for people of faith who might be listening, to remember that we are, uh, we might be people of one book, the, the Bible in a certain sense, but we're also people of many books. We learn from all sorts of different people, and you've certainly been uh, one of those people for me. And I, 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 we became friends. I mean, we didn't just have that one mm -hmm. coffee. We, we ended up becoming friends and uh, swapping books with one another and books that we wrote and sharing those with one another and, and, <laughs> yep. and, uh, and getting together from time to time just to kind of check in and, and talk about what we were doing. So I appreciate, I appreciate everything that I've learned from you, but today I want to talk about something uh, specific. Back when we first met at the time, you were working on something called grit. And I think you were either writing your book or you had just written a book called Fostering Grit. And I remember you were talking to me about that and explain to people what grit is. I'll just let you explain it before I, I dive in. Well, and, and, and let me put it in context. And, and Matt, you know, you said at the time I was running the New City School in St. Louis. And, and you know, we're like, we're like every school, our goal is to teach children how to read, write, and calculate. However, our goal is really to teach children to be good people, uh, to develop them for success in the world. And so my mantra, what I always say is, who you are is more important than what you know. Who you are is more important than what you know. And that's not to denigrate learning at all, but it's to say that we educators like you have a larger responsibility for developing people. And I had been at the school lots and lots of years. And one of the things I noticed was that if you Look at how children become adults and what they do with their lives. And I'm not talking about making money necessarily. I'm talking about being happy, being successful, that it often doesn't necessarily equate with grades and test scores and where they went to school. It's what's in their heart. And at that same time, uh, Angela Duckworth had done some work research on grit, and there was an article in the New York Times. And I read it, and I thought, wow, this really applies to us. And basically what grit is, 
is a combination of passion and persistence. It's, it's the fact that the people who you know, Matt, and I know who were successful in the world, however you want to define that success, I will guarantee you they didn't get that success on the first try. Mm -hmm. uh, they weren't born with those skills. They got that success because they were able to pick themselves up off the floor and try again and try again. And so when we look at success, again, however that's defined, uh, a key component is not giving up. It's having a goal, having a belief, and really working toward that. And, and with that mindset, then I came to my faculty, wonderful group of teachers, and I said, this is something that we need to really develop in our kids. Mm. And I think from, from lots of people's perspective, you would automatically assume, well, kids who are struggling really need grit because it's, it's hard for them and they want to give up. And that's true. Yeah. Semicolon, however, comma, the top kids, the high flyers that I call them, they needed grit too. These are the children, and you know them. Uh, you have some of them in your church. and some in my school. They may be in your family. These are the kids who do well with just about everything. Uh, they have success after success. But the reality is that's not going to continue all their lives. And my thesis has always been that we, the educators, need to prepare kids for grit. We need to teach them for grit. We need to teach them how to handle frustration and failure. Because if we don't, and the first time they hit that wall is at age 18 or 23 or whatever, they're not going to know how to respond. And so I took that to my faculty. Yeah, that's what captured my attention yep. when you when you said that to me. It I it, I immediately thought because what you're saying makes perfect sense, and yet to teach it and it almost sounds counterintuitive to teach kids this skill. You almost need to to teach them how to fail or or almost manufacture situations where they don't get to succeed. Is that right? I mean, is that kind of what you it led you to? A absolutely, that's right. And, and as you might imagine, uh, for many educators, that's the third rail. I mean, I took this to my faculty, and I got to tell you, uh, there was a pushback mm -hmm. uh, because, and I do it too. You know, I teach, as you said, the University of St. Louis. I'm teaching graduate program for people who want to become principals. And when I give a test and everybody gets an A, I think, wow, I'm a good teacher. You know, well, so the reality is we have framed our success on how well our kids do. And here I am standing in front of my faculty saying what we need to do is create opportunities, make opportunities when every kid in your class is going to hit the wall, when they're going to fail, when they're going to be frustrated. And that is just the antithesis of how we're yeah. taught to teach. Well, and I bet it wasn't just teachers that pushed back. I mean, uh, these parents, I'm, I'm sure many parents yep. of the students were uh, wanted sent their kids there because they wanted them to you know, be prepared for colleges and things like that. And how did they take to the idea that, Hey, bring your kids here. We're going to, we're going to make sure they fail so that they can <laughs> learn. Well, you know, it, it, like everything else. And I talked earlier about community, uh, our school was a community. So there was lots of communication, lots of dialogue and not everybody bought into it. I had some people who were really hesitant. I had some parents, as you might imagine, who had a kid who's 10 or 11 years old, who's, done well with everything and i'm saying we need to make sure she fails we need to make sure she mm -hmm. hits the wall and and intellectually intellectually i think parents understand that but that's really different than when your kid is bummed out or really sad um years ago i was interviewed uh, on an npr program and i made the comment that um everybody wants their kid to learn grip but nobody wants their kid to cry yeah and you know that, that that's the tension so we talked about it we planned it um we, we actually, many classrooms had rubrics for grit so that kids could see it. They could know what it was like. And what we wanted kids to really understand is that the goal is not succeeding when it's easy. The goal is taking a challenge, doing something that you're not comfortable doing, doing something that's harder, and persevering. And, and if we could get them to embrace that attitude, we knew that that was really going to prepare them for success in life. Yeah, so how did you do that? Because, I mean, I'm imagining it wasn't, you know, this isn't as simple as, hey, we're going to make the test really hard so you get a bad grade and go home right. and feel bad about yourself. This was, um, how did you go about actually setting up scenarios that were um, challenging enough that kids had to persist, but not so challenging that they, you know, just threw their hands up? And Right, right. And, and that's the tension. And, and I think the key here, again, is context. So before we jumped into it, if you will, 
we talked about it with kids. Uh, we talked about grit, what it looked like, what it meant. Um, I would have some teachers who would have their kids go home and, and interview their parents. And I know you've got children, and, you know, at times you think your children are your worst critics. Well, the reality is, from most kids' perspective, the adults they care about, their parents and their educators, everything seems to come easily to them. Uh, they see us as finished products. It's a little like when I watch the Olympics and I see some gymnasts, and I think, wow, I could never do that. Well, first of all, I could never do that. But secondly, what I don't see is that she spent 16,000 hours perfecting this. Yeah. And so part of it was helping kids talk to adults, talk to family members, sometimes bringing in somebody to talk to the class who's very successful and having that person share, let me tell you some of the behind-the-scenes failures I had. You don't see that, but let me talk about that. And I encourage teachers to talk about that, too, with their kids. And then we would actually have kids pick an area that was hard for them, uh, get out of their comfort zone, try something new, try something difficult. We were a multiple intelligences school, uh, which basically meant kids learned in lots of different ways. And one of the beauties of that was it allowed us to have kids work in an area that wasn't easy for them. Kids who are great readers and writers might not be as great in art or maybe as great in math. And we could talk about that and get them to do that. The other thing that we would do, and I talked about having a grit rubric, a levels of, of grit, if you will, on the wall, is we would have kids after a test or after an assignment write down the number that indicated how much grit they used. And then they could talk with the teacher about how did that feel? What did you do when you wanted to quit? What will you do differently next time? You know, and the reality is none of us are, are perfect when we reflect on ourselves. And so I don't suggest that kids are really great at knowing how much grit they use, but it, it got them to looking at the fact that the finished product shouldn't always be easy. And, and I think last comment here on this specific, Matt, too often we, we, we connote ease with, with excellence. Mm. Somebody does something easily and we think, wow, they're really good. And the fact that we can't do it easily says to us, well, I'm not good. I'm not going to try. And yeah. what we were trying to do was flip that and get kids to see that excellence comes about from effort, from, you know, passion and persistence. And if you've got that attitude, there's nothing uh, that is impossible. I, you know, I, as you, as I hear you talking about that, it is so important, I think. And I often talk, and this is related in my mind, that um, sometimes what, we, what we're good at and what we love end up being two different things. And we sometimes never get to what we love because we, we are afraid to venture out from what we're good at. And I'm an, I'm, an ex, I'm an example of this because I think you know this, but you know, I majored in theoretical math at Washington University. I, I was a, a math kid. I, I was the kid growing up that was just great at math. I excelled at it. And people would always tell me, oh, you're so good at math. You ha you know, you should do math. Mm -hmm. You should go into engineering or something like that, science and math. And you know what I heard in that was I heard in that you're not good at English, at writing, at reading, oh, wow. at speaking. Now, people didn't necessarily say that to me, but that that's what I internalized. Sure. And even in college, I began to feel this call to ministry and yet ministry was everything that I thought I was not good at. It was speaking in front of people, mathematicians, not to stereotype too much. They don't, they don't speak in front of people. Um, it was, it was, it was writing, it was reading, it was, and, and I yep. was, again, I was a math guy. And so even the choice for me to kind of go into ministry, it was scary because it was a step away from what I knew I was best at. But but good for you, Matt, for doing that. I mean, yeah. somewhere along the line, you learned grit. Maybe that was your <laughs> athletic background. Well, I, yeah, I don't know, but I'm so grateful now, and I always think it's ironic that I do. Uh, the only math I do is helping my uh, ninth grade daughter in geometry. And every day, I read, write, and speak, and that's that's all I do. But it, but getting back to to this, what I'm really curious about is, so you, you do all this, what did you learn from it or what did you notice? Did you notice anything that distinguishes a kid who kind of gets it, who, who learns and one who doesn't? I mean, what did you notice as you began to implement this? Well, and, and I had teachers doing it. I mean, I would ask them to, to talk about grit with their kids on Fridays. And then on Mondays, the question would be, how did you use grit over the weekend? Mm. So I got lots of stories from teachers, which were great. 
And, and at the risk of, of stereotyping, if you will, I think what happens is that the, kids, that the kids who embrace this basically broaden their comfort zone a little like you. They were more willing to do things that we weren't going to necessarily be a success at. They also really developed resilience. They didn't give up as easily. I mean, I mentioned athletics earlier, and I know you're a, a former athlete. And one of the things we, we think about with grit is the kid who's a great shortstop but doesn't want to play basketball or the kid who's a great swimmer. She doesn't want to get into tap dancing or whatever. They get a niche and they only stay in that. Mm-hmm. And what we, what we thought we were seeing is that the kids who embrace grip were more comfortable with not necessarily getting an A plus. My school had a lot of high flyers, a lot of kids who did really well. And by the end of, of our work with it the first year, we felt kids were less, less focused, if you will, on what the grade is. And more, here's what I learned. I tried something new, and it was hard, but here's here's what I've done. And again, that's a lifeboat. So I, I can't help but thinking about, as, as you're talking, that uh, I didn't get, you know, I didn't get to go to a school like this when I, when I was a kid. And I can imagine some adults listening to this saying, man, I wish I, wish I would have learned this earlier. I'm really curious how your work in an educational setting with grit and, and failure, how is, how do you think this applies to adults? I mean, is it too late for us to, to learn this or to incorporate this more into our life? Absolutely. It is not too late. And let me, let me kind of bring two threads together here. The first one is that uh, I ran a school, I'm an educator, but I always said parents are more important than schools. And so whether you're a mom or a dad, whatever caregiver you are, you have a greater impact on a child than the teachers. And what that means is that we, the adults, it's not too late for us to learn grit. And definitely it's not too late for us to develop it in our children. And so if you go back to what I was talking about with classrooms, I think starting off by talking about grit uh, is a great way to go. And I know at the end uh, you'll give my, my website. I've got some stuff there. It's on grit. People can get it free. If they email me, I can send you some articles for free to just read about it. And I think having a a dinner table discussion about grit, what does that look like? Who can we identify that we know who thinks you use it? When have you used it? And then the adult sharing it. That's a great way to get kids then part of the solution. And I think as adults, um, if you want to develop children's grit in your family, you need to model it. Um, Angela Duckworth, in fact, who's the promulgator of Grit, Grit, talks about the one hard thing rule. And she says that in her family, one of the things they do on a monthly basis is everybody picks one hard thing that they want to work on. And every Friday at dinner, they share the progress they're making. And the rule is you can't quit and you can't second guess somebody else. And Hmm. so every Friday, you know that you're going to talk about it. And part of the deal is that you're expected to talk about what didn't do what didn't go the way you wanted, what you didn't do well, and how you responded. Uh, so I think it's, it's absolutely not too late for we, the adults, to, to do it with our kids. It's also not too late to make it a dinner table focus. I, not to bring it too too much back to church, but I'm reminded of something. You know, in the Christian tradition, we have this concept of sin. You know, where you've missed the mark or done something wrong. And the, the founder of Methodism, I'm a United Methodist pastor, some people don't know that, but the founder of Methodism, uh, John Wesley, would gather people in small groups and he would ask them questions. And we still have these questions. And I, and I always think it's interesting that one of the first questions he asked them was, you know, where have you sinned this past week? <laughs> like, where have you messed up? And mm-hmm. I was reminded of that as you were talking, because in some ways, grit challenges us to not only th- think about doing hard things, but kind of reflect back on Absolutely. those times when we've maybe missed the mark, failed, d- did something and it didn't work out, which is is interesting because so often that's not the stuff we share with our kids, right? I mean, we, we share our success exactly. stories. We want our kids to see the best of who we are, maybe as parents, and not just kids. We want other people to see kind of the best of who we are, and yet... What you're saying is sometimes we need to spend some time, not just privately, but even with our with our kids or with others, processing what didn't go well. Totally. I mean, I think you know, if, if some dinner table conversation saying, "Let me tell you what's really hard for me, really frustrated. 
I, wa- I wanted to quit today and I didn't. Uh, kids need to hear that. Again, they see the finished product too often. You know, it's after they go to sleep that we're working on something that's hard. We're working on it long into the night. The next morning, we don't say to them, hey, I'm a little grumpy because I was up to one trying to finish this project. Uh, we smile and we go on. And what that is is a missed opportunity. What we need to do is not just talk about grit, but model it. Mm-hmm. Tom, what would you say? I know maybe I'm asking you to get outside your your specialty a bit, but people right now who are just in, in one of those seasons right now, uh, anyone who might be listening who feels like I am throwing myself at something, a job, a, you know, a relationship, anything, and I, I feel like a failure, uh, not just like I'm failing, but like a failure. Any words of advice, any words of counsel that you would offer to people uh, j- informed by your work? Well, I mean, a, a couple of thoughts. One is, you know, my heart, heart goes out to them. Life life is not always easy. We know that. Um, I think that it's much harder to to demonstrate grit, if you will, by yourself. And so whether it's the dinner table or whether it's somebody at work or somebody that, you know, you're, you're talking to on the phone or online, having a person with whom you can share your struggles and with whom you can relish in your successes. And, you know, and a success doesn't mean you got an A. It maybe means that you got a C minus when you were getting a D. And, you know, maybe you're at a work setting where you don't get a letter grade, but you know that you're making progress, you're, you're, you're not giving up. And I think being able to talk about that with somebody, being able to have a plan, here's what I'm going to do when I get frustrated. I'm not going to lose my cool. I'm going to try again. And then subsequently saying, wow, here's how I handle that and getting some feedback and support from a friend I think is, is really helpful. I, I can't help but but think as you talk about grit and even in that advice you just gave, there, there's some other words that come to my mind. Uh, you know, this requires uh, vulnerability, something we're not always good at. It requires mm-hmm. empathy uh, when we remember that in a workplace or something, uh, just because someone's struggling with something doesn't mean uh, that they're in the wrong role or that they're not doing the right thing. And, and remembering that sometimes that can actually lead to stronger people, honesty, integrity, some of these other values, your, your work, I I think it's interesting because I know that now today you're, you're working actively on a a book about empathy and you're teaching a class. You told me uh, before we went on air uh, called uh, leaders cultivating virtues. And I, I think it's interesting that it sounds to me like your work with educators has become less about teaching them the mechanics of how to stand in front of a classroom. And it's more about, I mean, dare I say, almost these sort of religious or uh, spiritual dimensions of, of character that they need to have. Talk a little bit about how your work has gone into this area. Well, well I, I think you're exactly right. And again, it comes back to my comment, you know, at the beginning of the program, <clears throat> when I said who you are is more important than what you know. And, and I take that as a, as a commitment that what I want to do is help prepare educators so that they take that attitude to their schools, whether they're teaching fifth grade like I did or whether they're a school principal like I was. And so I wrote a book after Fostering Grip called The Formative Five. And what I did was identify five what I call success skills that we educators need to develop in children, regardless of their age, to prepare them for success in the world. And those were Empathy, self-control, integrity, embracing grit, I'm sorry, embracing diversity and grit. And we worked a great deal on those. And I began with empathy because when I look around the world today, uh, you know, not just today, but for a long time, empathy is really what we need. And it seems to me if we could develop more empathy in people, it would be a much better place. And so I've been talking about that. What does that look like in a classroom? If you run a school, how does it work? The book on which I'm working, uh, to which you referred, is called Principal is CEO, Chief Empathy Officer. Mm. And basically, if, if you approach leadership of empathy, you're going to develop people differently. You're going to develop empathy in them and in their students. Well, I love, I love this because it does align so much with what I often teach from the pulpit, what I think our faith teaches uh, those of us who are 
uh, Christians, and that it really is who we are is more important than what we do. And we live in a world mm-hmm. that values us so much by what we produce, what the outcomes are, what we are able to offer. And uh, it not enough incentives are out there for us to work on wh- who we are. And yet, I think who we are, our character matters, and and we see that I think uh, in some ways on stark display around our world, and and so I'm appreciative of that word, and, and I think one of my takeaways from listening to you, and something that I I try to teach often, is what you said a while ago is is that failure, seasons of failure, and it can we can respond to those in one of two ways we can sort of batten down the hatches and drift back to what we know we're good at, what we know we can uh, succeed in. And that oftentimes I think just leads to kind of small living is what I call it. it we, we just, well put. we're afraid and we therefore just won't try very many things. And we oftentimes mm-hmm. miss maybe the best of, of what God has called us to do. Uh, and yet what you're suggesting is if we see those seasons of failure as learning opportunities, as opportunities to build resilience, the result of that can actually be uh, larger living, a willingness to try new things, to live a little bit more boldly, to work outside our comfort zone. And of course, I'm just a big believer that that's where we find uh, oftentimes uh, s- surprising uh, new life uh, fulfilling, um, projects. So, uh, thank you for that. Well, Tom, I know that you and I could talk all day. We (laughs) fill up an hour uh, or a half an hour easily. It sounds to me like we need to do another, uh, week on empathy and dive into that. Cause here's another area where it sounds like your work and, uh, kind of so much of what I think the gospel teaches us. This is an overlap again, and so how about a future conversation where we focus on empathy? I, I would be delighted to do that. Uh, thank you for, for thinking of it. That sounds good. Okay. Uh, I want to make sure, though, before I let you go, Tom, that people know where to find you. And so they can learn more about your work, your books. You have a website, thomasrherd.com, and that's H-O-E-R-R is your last name for people who right. are listening. So Thomas R. Her h o e r r dot com. It has more about you, about your work, about your books. People can also just open up Amazon and search your name, and you'll find Fostering Grit, The Formative Five, and other books that you've written. Anything else we need to know about where to find you? Nope, that, that's good. And if people find me again, I'm I'm happy to help. I don't have the answers, but I'm delighted to be part of the dialogue. Well, I want to thank you, uh, Tom, because not only for taking time today to talk, but really uh, as a young pastor in St. Louis, you were curious about me. And in doing so, you helped me to learn from you. And so over the years, I've appreciated your leadership. I thank you for what you've offered, um, not just the educational world, but St. Louis uh, community. And I'm grateful that we got to become friends. So thank you so much for uh, joining me today. Yep. Ditto from here, Matt. Thanks and take care. Okay. Thanks. My guest has been Dr. Thomas Her. Again, you can find him at thomasrher.com. I want to thank him and I thank all of you for listening. I'm Pastor Matt Miofsky, and this has been the F Word Conversations on Faith. I will see you next week.